mind. Um, We're going to continue this morning in Romans 14, which is what we were in last week. And um, as we uh, we talk about that, um, we're going to be looking at a church uh, in Rome that is basically divided into two very different groups of people. And uh, typically I read, we kind of read the passage beforehand, but I think we're actually just going to kind of read it as we go through it this morning um, because we're, um, I think it's just a little bit better to go through it that way. So um, we're, we started last week in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, and we read through half of chapter 14. And this morning we're going to be picking up in verse 13 of that chapter. And I want to read the first just few verses of that for you. Um, So let me read those, and I'll put them up on the screen, and um, there we go. We're just going to look at these ones here, verses 13 through 23 of Romans chapter 14, where Paul says this. He says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brothers grieve by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. We can just stop right there for a second. So Paul talking here again, like we talked about last week, about food. Like, why are you talking about food? Why is that so important that it's working its way into this this discussion about what it means to live the Christian life, to live out the gospel in our lives, right? What we talked about last week was how the church was made up of these two different groups of people, two different groups of church people, basically. The whole purpose for writing this letter to the Roman church, it's a really big, important, significant letter that breaks, that explains the gospel in wonderful, beautiful detail. And Paul wrote it to the church because they were divided. And he needed something, the most important thing, to bring them together, these two different groups of people. There were two kinds of church people in the Roman church. There were the, the, the Jewish Christians who grew up kind of in religion and in the church and with rules and traditions, and they were used to those things. And so when they became Christians, um, they had a very difficult time separating the rules they used to follow from uh, following Jesus without those rules. And so that was what they did. They still abstained from eating a lot of different stuff, and they wouldn't drink wine because they thought that wouldn't be a good thing to do. And um, they uh, even worshipped only one day of the week, and not on. they considered one day much more special than the other days because of the Sabbath and the Old Testament. So you had that group of church people, and they were the minority. There were not a lot of them. And then you had the bigger group of people, church people, which are called the Gentiles, which are people who didn't grow up in that group. And so when they became Christians and they started following Jesus, they were like, uh, we don't feel the need to follow any of these other rules or laws unless someone tells us we have to, and nobody was telling them they had to. And so because they did such different things, uh, they had really different ways of like being Christians, it seemed. They were totally at odds with each other, and they just felt no need to come together and be one church. They were these different house churches that met a bunch of house churches that were Gentile, a bunch of house churches that were Jewish, and they just didn't really work together. So Paul writes this entire letter to them, saying to them, the power of the gospel means that it's the same gospel for all of you, and here's the news, guys. You've got to figure this out. You've got to actually be able to come together and worship and be together We talked about that last week and how there are these things that we forget 
about the way um, God and the gospel work, about the way, what it means to be in community. And when we forget these things, um, they really harm our ability to like be with other people, to be in community with other people. This morning, we're kind of looking at something similar um, when we look at the second half of this. These first few verses where Paul begins, he says, we're not to pass judgment on one another any longer. Uh, I'm going to skip past all these other ones I was going to do. Sorry, I had this all. Okay, there we go. I know it looks the same, but believe me, it's not. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. He says, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So what he's saying here is he is talking about something that is incredibly uh, wonderful and important if you're a person who follows Jesus today, and it's that. That thanks to the gospel, in Christ we have freedom. We have freedom from what they say is sin and from the law. So we have freedom because uh, without the gospel, we seek to find meaning and purpose in life and to actually validate ourselves and justify ourselves and be like meaningful people in any way. We seek to do that just through um, the pleasures and the joys of living a good life. Or we seek to do that by doing the right things and by somehow being a good person. And so both of those, the law or uh, the flesh, is the way the Bible describes it, both of those things become things that kind of enslave a person because as they try to be justified by those things, um, they, they lose their ability to be about anything else. The good news of the gospel is that we're no longer righteous because of the law and the rules we follow, and we're also uh, no longer righteous because, or we're also, uh, a good life isn't only found in all these other things that seem to ultimately end up leading us to death. In Christ is the gospel, and in Christ is freedom. Paul talks about that when he says, like, things are all okay for me now that weren't okay for me before. Nothing is unclean in itself. But then he goes on to say it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So Paul's talking about how, like, the good news is um, we don't have to follow a lot of the rules, all these rules that, that people followed when they looked to the Old Testament law. He says, that's good news. You don't have to follow those anymore. But then he goes on to say something really confusing, which is, but if someone thinks those things are good, important things to do, then, uh, then they are that. Like, Paul, what are you talking about, right? What are you, what are you talking about? Um, we now have freedom. Why would you start limiting it by these things that we do? Um, one of the hardest things to wrap our mind around when it comes to experiencing freedom. We live in America. We, we, tr- we, have a, we place a tremendously high value on freedom and on liberty, on our ability to do anything we want to do, right? We go, like, that's what freedom is. And if you tell me that I'm free, then the last thing I'm ever going to do is give up that freedom and start limiting the things that I do because I have freedom to do them. So you can't tell me that I can't. feels almost like in many ways, um, uh, when we find out that we're free, the first thing we think to do with that freedom is ask the question, how can I enjoy this freedom for myself today? And then we stop there. But what Paul's telling us here in, in these first few verses is he's saying the freedom that you've been given isn't just for you, to go on living a good life. The freedom you've been given is also supposed to be benefiting someone else. The first thing he says here to us is this, that I can use my freedom either for myself 
for my own pleasure, or I can use my freedom for my community. You can use this new status that you have, because prior to this, if people were kind of consumed with the law, then they spent all their time being stressed out about whether they were doing exactly the right thing. And when you live that way, it can create a lot of tension between people because you're also worried about whether your neighbor's doing the right thing because you don't want them to pollute what you're doing. And you also can't help but go, I mean, if you're not doing what I'm doing, you're probably doing something wrong and that's not good. And so people were so preoccupied with who was doing what, who was following the laws the right way, who was following the rules the best way, that there wasn't a lot of freedom in that. And it didn't make things in community very nice. Well, on the other side, you had Gentile Christians who came out of uh, sort of this Roman world where they worship pagan gods and false idols and all these other things that were very valued in their culture and their society, but didn't uh, actually bring them the kind of community and life that we find in the kingdom of God and in the church. And so they now are free. They're now free being a part of the church through the gospel that they get to be about something bigger than themselves. You see, we absolutely love freedom, and we hate giving it up for other people. But it's, there is no way to be in a relationship with another human being, especially a meaningful one, without letting go of some of our freedoms. That's the way it works. When I got married to my wife, we, I chose on that day, and she chose on that day, we chose that we were going to deny certain freedoms in pursuit of loving one another sacrificially. If you have children, if you have close friends, if you're a part of a family, then you know what it's like to say, I could do this thing. You call me on the phone and say, I need your help. You could be like, guess what? I don't need to. Click and go back to watching TV. I have the freedom to do that, right? But if I love you and I care about you, then I can choose to use that freedom either for myself feel no guilt, or I can choose to use it to help you. This is the good news about how the gospel makes real community possible for the first time in the lives of all of these people. But it's hard for us because we, we're individualistic people. We're self-centered people. We like to think that what it is to live the Christian life starts with us in our, by ourselves, in isolation. Or, or maybe, maybe because I have freedom, it means I get to choose to be around anybody I want to be around. And I don't have to be around anyone I don't want to be around. This was the problem in Rome. You had Gentiles saying, if I've got freedom, leave me alone. I want to be with my people. And if they've got freedom, leave them alone. They get to be with their people. We'll all be happy and we'll all be separate and it'll work out great. Why on earth should I care enough to be willing to give up some of the freedom that I have for the sake of my community. Because this is what Paul's saying that we are to do. He's saying it isn't wrong to eat meat. It isn't wrong to drink wine. It isn't wrong to worship um, on only uh, one day of the week and not the others. He says these are, are, are to worship on all the other days of the week. He says the good news is all these things that people used to think were bad, they're not bad anymore, so you don't have to worry about them, so you don't have to follow those rules. Good news. But then he's saying but you might find yourself in a situation where in order to love your brother or your sister, you do. You do choose to follow that rule. You choose to do something you wouldn't otherwise do for the sake of another person. Why would God want me to do that? Why would it matter? Well, because um, this isn't just about 
being nice to people. This isn't just about being kind to people and them having an easier time. This goes deeper than that, and Paul explains it in the next passage. He goes on to say, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever this, whoever this serves, Christ is acceptable. Sorry, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Mutual upbuilding, that's like the weirdest word ever, upbuilding. He's basically saying building up. And what he's saying here is very clear. He's saying, now that you have this freedom, he says, uh, God is not so concerned with what you're eating and drinking and these physical things you're doing in every situation like you thought he was. What he is concerned about more is that you are mutually, he says, building one another up. So the reason this matters so much is because we're not just being nice to each other and being good friends. Paul takes it a step further and he says, your, your actions, the way you choose to live, the way you choose to live out your faith around these other people and your freedoms, the way you choose to exercise your freedoms has a much greater impact on the way they will choose to live out their faith than you would think. You matter a lot more to other people than you think you do. Some of us don't like that. We don't want to matter more to other people. I mean, we wonder why we feel alone in the Christian life much of the time. We wonder why we have to figure everything out for ourselves constantly. We wonder why we might feel like we don't know uh, what it's like to be a part of a good community. But it's because many of us say, I don't want that. I avoid that. I'm going to do this on my own. And what Paul is saying here, when he says building up, is he's actually saying something he often says about the church. He's saying Together, you're going to help one another get to a place you couldn't get on your own. The way I use my freedom will build you up or it will tear you down. But there isn't really anything in between. He's saying to the church body, he's saying um, it goes further than you would even think. Your choices and actions and the way that you talk to other people and the way that you treat their faith and their choices and their actions will either serve to build them up because it will make them feel more encouraged being a part of this community and in the faith. It will make them feel like they can keep going even when it's hard because they're not alone and because people aren't telling them that what they're doing is wrong all the time. Or it will make them feel like they're being torn down. And the, the word he used, the language he uses is putting a stumbling block in front of somebody. He says, your, your friend, your neighbor's walking through the Christian life. They're walking through the faith. They're trying to make progress in living out the Christian life. And when you step up to that person and say, I can't believe you think you need to do these things. I can't believe you worry about this kind of stuff that is so uh, not necessary to being a good Christian. Or we do the opposite, and we say, honestly, I just have to be honest. I, I, don't, I can't understand how you could possibly think that it's okay to do these things that you do um, and still be a Christian to all the people that don't do exactly what we do. When we do that to people, Paul says, you're, you're taking a stumbling block like a block of something, and you're throwing it in front of a person, and they're going to trip over it. You're making it hard for them. You're tearing that person down. I don't know if you've ever been given a job that you didn't actually want. Like, you signed up for one job, and then you find out very quickly 
I have a totally different job to do, and it's not at all what I was interested in doing, right? I think a lot of us know what that feels like, and you find yourself in that situation, you go, hold on, this isn't what I signed up for, right? This isn't what I signed up for. That was the joke with all the pastors here when COVID hit and everything kind of went upside down, was like, that was the joke, was all you just had to say about anything anyone asked you to do ever was like, That's, this isn't what I signed up for, right? Like, uh, you're standing in front of a camera and like broadcasting yourself and like doing the weather report or whatever, and it's like, this isn't what I signed up for, like, when, like me and Pastor Dave are like on the Starship Enterprise with a green screen telling jokes to people, and he's like, this isn't what I signed up for, right? And, and I'm like, how dare you, right? How dare you, right? But we all know what that feels like. What am I... I don't know why, but I've been like obsessed with movies from the 80s lately that I watched growing up. And then one of, the, one of the other ones that I watched growing up when I was like younger was a movie called Career Opportunities. Has anybody ever heard of this movie? I love that no one's ever heard of these movies. This movie is an, okay, good, there we go, yes. This is an incredible movie. It's an incredible movie, right? It's about a guy uh, who is, he really likes people. He's really good with people. He, in fact, he's so good with people that he kind of like weasels his way out of pretty much any responsibility he has in life. And so believe it or not, he finds himself constantly out of a job. And he lives with his parents, and one day he comes home and they say, you got to get a job. You're like your 80th job or else we're kicking you out. And his mom tells him the good news. I hear Target's hiring. And so uh, he goes to Target. And John Candy is the manager at Target, which is amazing. And he interviews him. And, and the guy just is amazing. And he's interviewing for a job as a janitor. And he's like, I don't want to be a janitor, but you know what? I get to work at Target, and I like people, so that's great, right? And he uses amazing people skills, and he wins this guy over, and he convinces John Candy that he is the most qualified and best janitor that he's ever seen. And he's like, wow, you're hired. Can you start tonight? And he goes, tonight? What do you mean? And he says, well, our janitor works overnight by himself in a target. And so he shows up, uh, and they uh, put him in the target with all the stuff he needs, and they literally lock the door. And in the first service, I said, uh, that's like the most unrealistic part of the movie to me. I talked to a guy who told me that he did work at Target, and they locked him in at night. So that's actually a thing that they do. They lock you in at night. They lock this guy in at night, and then he has to spend all night in Target alone, a robbery happens, all kinds of shenanigans and hijinks, and he decides not very long in, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not interested in doing this beyond tonight. And so then you just get to watch a guy trash a Target and like eat all the food and do all the fun stuff that like any kid wishes that they could do if they were left alone in a Target all night, right? I would build all the Legos. That's what I would do. He uses recliners and eats popcorn and watches football or whatever, right? Uh, we, we know what it's like to find ourselves in a situation where we like thought we signed up for one job and then we got another one. And I think this is kind of how it can feel to the Gentile Christians who are hearing these words of Paul. Like, Paul, hold on a second. Like, we thought this wasn't about the rules and the law anymore. We now have freedom. We don't have to go worship all these idols that the Romans do, and we don't have to follow all these Old Testament laws that the Jewish people are still hung up on. We have freedom. Now you're telling us that we don't? And he's saying, I'm telling you that freedom isn't what you think it is. I'm telling you that you're to be concerned, and you have a job, and your job is to help build up your brother. I think a lot of us are like, I can barely manage this for myself, you know? Like, I can barely keep myself on track with this thing. How in the world am I supposed to help other people not be discouraged and torn down in the faith, right? Well, what we find when we actually attempt to live this way in community is that it's because we don't want to help build up others, that we don't allow a diversity of people to be around us, and that we don't actually give of ourselves more than we want to, that's the reason we often find ourselves so isolated that we're like, I can barely do this thing on my own. How am I supposed to do it with other people? 
But there's an aspect of this that when we hear Paul talking this way, it starts to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because it seems kind of like, um, well, anyway, I'll get to that. It's the, next, it's the final verses of the passage. And when you read these, it's easy to go, what? That Paul's saying this. He says, um, well, this is kind of the last part of the last uh, ones we looked at. He, he tells us that the stakes for living in community, the stakes um, for our relationship with other people are a lot higher than we think they are. He basically is saying, because um, you encouraging your brother in what God has called them to do and following him or convicted them, because he, he places a high importance on your conscience. We talked about this last week, that God says to us, like, it's your job to, instead of worrying about this person, for you to come before God yourself and to say, God, like, what is right for me in seeking to follow you and what isn't? What things are causing me to struggle? What are causing me to pull away from you? What things are tempting me in that way? And then, God, how can I not disobey my conscience? How can I follow my conscience, which is going to tell me and convict me to do these things? It's so important, he says, that even if a person believes that following this, this rule will help them in serving God, that if you get that person to not do it, if you, if you talk them into the idea that it doesn't really matter anymore, that you're actually causing that person to compromise their own conscience because they're saying, I'm going to get used to a Christian, what it means to be a Christian being, I, I kind of decide things are important and then I try them for a while and then I, somebody says they're not and then I go, okay, well, if you say they're not, then I won't. And then basically, I'm just never really doing anything that I think God's calling me to do. It gets very confusing. And it can get so confusing and so discouraging to people that it actually causes some to walk away to begin with, which is what he's calling about destroying the work of God. He's saying God is doing a work in the church. He's doing a work amongst you and I as we live in community together. And that work he's doing is to build up the body of Christ, is the way Paul says it, refers to it and describes it again and again. So God is building us up. He is doing an incredible work in that. But there's something that happens to a person when they're following God, and they go, because it's really hard to, I don't know if you know this, but it can be very difficult to seek to follow Jesus in a world where most people don't believe in Jesus. It can be very lonely and isolating. What we find is that the church and the community of our brothers and sisters is an incredibly encouraging thing for us. So then imagine being a part of a community of believers and having those people tell you that the things that you're doing to serve God are wrong. And that you need to become more like them. Or imagine you waking up and going, I just, it seems to me like we all have to look the same. And if we all have to look the same, then I'm discouraged by the fact that we look so different in how we follow God. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. He's saying, if the Jews and the Gentiles get together in one church, which I want them to do, and if you keep pointing out how the other people are doing things different from you, then what you're going to do is discourage them. You're going to make them go, man, I feel like I was a part of a team that was competing or doing something together, and then every time I showed up to a game, four more people were gone. They were like, I'm interested in doing it this way. I'm interested in doing it my own way. That may not be what they were doing, but it feels that way to us when they remind us of just how on a different page we are from them. And so Paul's saying, he's saying, when this happens, it's discouraging. And for some, it will cause them to just think, what we do obviously doesn't matter. And isn't this what happens? When you get people who live out the Christian life differently, 
then it feels like maybe in some cases the answer is to just go, uh, well, that's, uh, I guess maybe God just doesn't care what we do, right? God doesn't care about how we behave, how we live, how we follow him in the specific things that we do. And so in that way, it breaks down our faith. It causes us to break down what God is building up. And the other thing that it does to us, if we go the other extreme, is we go, no, we are all supposed to look exactly the same. And because we don't, I'm discouraged, I'm disheartened, and I look at the church around me and I say, this isn't at all the way it's supposed to be. There aren't enough people doing what I'm doing. Or I can't possibly figure out how to change enough to be like these other people. So what we do then is we walk away. We isolate ourselves and we walk away and we say, I'm going to have to learn how to follow God on my own without all of these imposters or legalists or whatever we want to call it. But in all of those things, we run the risk of of destroying the work that God is doing, and it's very important. Paul goes on, though, and he says this afterwards. He says, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat, or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So he's saying here that it is good for you to choose to not do something you're free to do if doing that causes your brother to stumble because it's what they understand it means to follow God. And it's where they come from in their experience. He goes on, though, to say, and tell me this isn't just a very difficult thing to wrap our mind around, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. What? Like if I read you those words, if if, if I got up this morning and I said, okay, our sermon is just going to be half of, of one thing that one guy said once and I think he's really smart. Here's what it is. Ready? The faith that you have keep between yourself and God, right? What if we put that on our, like, uh, on our webpage, right? The faith you have, keep between yourself and God, right? We get one of those lit up signs that like, you can put things on, and we put that on the sign. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God, right? And they drive by that church and be like, what? What are they talking about, right? Or people might be like, sweet, see ya, <laughs> you know? I don't think anybody would go in, though, right? <laughs> They'd be like, okay, good, I'll keep it between myself and God. It's nice, nice sign, thanks, right? Put that on the billboard and drive by it. It's like confusing, and what? But the one thing that we would know for sure if we read that is we'd be like, there's no way that's in the Bible, right? Okay, maybe if it's in the Bible, it's definitely not something that somebody like Paul said because that guy was pretty, pretty serious about stuff, right? Why on earth would Paul say something like that? This brings up something that is our number one objection to what he's talking about. Our number one objection to what he's talking about. Maybe you're hearing some of this stuff and your hairs are standing up on the back of your neck and you're going like, wait a second, I don't think I like where this is going. I'm not really sure that I, uh, I, I definitely care about where this plane lands today, right? Uh, are we going to end up in a place where you're basically saying, like it sounds a lot, like we're starting to say, it doesn't matter what you do in living the Christian life. What? Is that what you're saying? Is that what we're saying? Is that what Paul's saying? That, that, that people can just do different things? and still be honoring and following God? Oh, can you even imagine the slippery slope? That would, that's like a slope with a slide that's greased up and like you're dropping like water balloons down it or something. I don't know. I think of like a greased up watermelon or a turkey for some reason. Just think about that thing shooting down there. That's how slippery that slope is, right? Like that does not sound like a good idea at all. That does not sound good at all. We got to be careful about that. When Paul says here in verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God, 
He's saying something about the nature of sin in the life of a person. And he is reminding us of something that Jesus himself began teaching people about how sin really works in a person's life. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talked about what it is to really live righteously, to live well, he, he talked about all these different aspects of a person's life. He talked about parts of the law. And, you know, and he said like what we are and aren't supposed to do. But in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus brings up these things that we think of when we talk about this. I mean, how is it that God could possibly, like, expect different things out of different people? What? How could God possibly say that one thing is wrong for one person and not for another? Isn't that what he's saying? Isn't that what Paul's saying? Is it murder, murder? Is it stealing, stealing? Is it lust, lust? Is it adultery, adultery? When is it ever not that thing? When is it okay for someone to do it and not someone else to do it? That's not what's happening here. When Jesus talked about those things, murder and adultery and theft and all these things, what he did was he went to the roots of where those things started. Jesus says this, and well, this is essentially what Paul is saying here. I'm going to go back to this, though. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 29 through 30. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Yikes. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body will go into hell. What are you talking about? Is what people thought when Jesus said this. When Jesus talks about cutting off parts of our body. He's not actually talking about cutting off parts of our body. He wasn't saying that you'll know, they'll know you're my disciples because you're walking around with one eye and one hand and one foot, right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's, he's talking about the things that we're physically able and free to do, okay? So I've got hands, that gives me the ability to work and feel and touch and do things, with these hands. I have eyes and I have the freedom and the ability to see and to look at things. I have ears and I can listen and hear things and take things in. I have feet and I can move and go do things and be productive and work and all that stuff. I have the ability to do so much with these body parts that God has given me. And thanks to the law not being something that I'm enslaved under, I am free to do a lot more than most people would think. But what Jesus says here is he says, if Anything that you're capable of doing, that you have the ability to do and the freedom to do, causes you to then sin. Get rid of that thing. Because it would be better for you to not be free in that thing anymore. To not have the ability to do that thing anymore. Than to have your whole body consumed by sin. To have your whole body consumed by what sin brings us. You see, Jesus said to people, he said, murder doesn't begin with murder. It begins with hate for your brother. And when you hate your brother, you've murdered them. He says, uh, envying your brother's wife or, 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 or adultery with your neighbor's wife begins with envying your neighbor's wife, with, with lust that begins in your mind before it ever gets played out in your, in your body parts. And Jesus says that we are to be vigilant about what tempts us into sin. The last thing that Paul's saying here that we have to get 
is that sin is the same for everybody. Sin is sin. But temptation is different for each one of us. Paul is saying that your faith is to yourself and God. And what he means by that is he's saying you are responsible to come before the Lord and say, God, what is it that leads me into this pit that I keep falling in again and again and again, right? I keep falling in the same hole. But what's crazy is that when we do that, we come to realize something, and it is that we're not all tempted in the same ways by the same things. We're not. You can put a, a glass of wine in front of one person, and it will tempt them to do something that is sinful. Maybe to begin going down a, a path of addiction that they're prone to, that they know will consume them and destroy their life. And there is another who can pick up that glass of wine and drink it and not sin. Because that doesn't lead them into temptation, into something that is ultimately sinful. There are things that we are free to do, but we're wise in our conscience to come before the Lord and say, God, does this thing lead me into something that is destructive or that's destruction? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. This is what he's talking about. So he's saying, when he talks about causing our brother to stumble, when he talks about like this idea that different people will follow God in ways that look different, is he saying, depending on a person's faith, depending on a person's background, depending on uh, what a person brings to what it looks like to follow Jesus, he says, um, there are going to be different things that cause that person to stumble. Remember, we've been talking about, about the Christian life, about living differently because of the hope that we have in Jesus. We've been talking about what it means to actually live in a physically different way than we would have otherwise lived before the gospel came into our lives. In order for us to do that, we stop and we look and we say, what is it that might lead me to a place where I'm not being built up, but I'm being torn down? I have, uh, there are so many different things that, that tempt us. That, that, that make, it, make us more susceptible in like a weakened state as we live in the flesh to engage in something that's wrong, to, to, to stray away from God. There are things that will, uh, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are things that will cause us to be tempted to, to, to like not see God anymore as the Lord of our lives, but to see, let something else take that place and take that spot in our hearts. You know, one of the things that was so difficult for me in my Christian life for many years was understanding what accountability looked like. Because I, I became a Christian when I was a teenager. And at that time in my life, accountability was very black and white. It was very straightforward. It was, here's all the things that you're not supposed to do. And um, they, were, they were definitely things you're not supposed to do, by the way, for the record, right? This was like, you're not supposed to do these things, right? Don't go drink alcohol, okay? You're like 15, don't drink alcohol, okay? That's wrong, that's a sin, okay? Uh, don't, don't look at these things or treat people this way or, or say these kinds of things and act this way. These are, these are objectively sinful things and that doesn't change, right? 
Um, so my understanding of accountability was I need to have people around me in my life, I want people to help build me up, people that I can encourage because I'm so bad at doing these things, it seems. And, uh, and so what we'll do is we'll just get together and we'll all have all these rules. And these are all the rules that we have to follow, right? And so we'll meet with each other and we'll be like, did you follow the rules that we were going to follow? And we'll be like, no, I didn't. And then we'll like beat each other up or we'll like berate each other. And we'll basically like, um, I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating in any way that I had a friend at one point who we had agreed that if we sinned um, in a certain area that we would spit in each other's faces, We were like, are we serious about this or not? Then we've got to be serious about this. What I found as I grew up, as I got older in the faith, was that, it, um, that any time that I attempted something like that, it began to gravitate towards this sort of legalistic way of living. And it also ended up being all of us so focused on every one of us figuring out what's the things we're all universally supposed to do and not do that it became like nothing but a list of rules yet again. And I thought, but that doesn't seem to be the way that it works quite as much. It wasn't until I recognized that what I needed was to be able to sit in the company of of brothers who said, we all sincerely are seeking to follow God and to live the Christian life. And we all recognize that there are different things in our lives that we struggle with, and there are different things that lead us to those. And so my job and how I can build you up is I can, I can hear you and I can pay attention when you tell me this is what I think is causing me to stumble and to sin. And I can encourage you and I can remind you in that even if it's not the same thing for me. See, before that, I thought I'm supposed to get around everybody who does what I do, and then we all follow the same rules, and that's the end of it. But it only went so far with that. And eventually, we were spitting in each other's faces again. I have friends who don't own cell phones because that is too great a temptation for them. And that does not make it a sin for other people to own cell phones. I have friends who do not drink alcohol because it is a temptation for them or because there are people close to them in their life that it is a temptation for and because those people probably aren't able to discern the difference between what, is, what is, uh, we're free to do even if, it's, even if it's not good all the time. I have friends who cannot watch the news because it turns them into these like furiously angry, bitter, like werewolf-type people who transform once they read four news stories and they're just like, I hate the world and I hate everyone and it's all going to burn, right? I know none of us know anybody like that. None of us feel that way, right? Do you see how, like, for someone that I talk to who feels that way, who struggles with getting too angry and getting too fixated on the negative and the bad that's happening, that, that when that friend recognizes that and sees that, that what I want to do is I want to be able to come alongside that person and encourage them and help them in avoiding falling in that hole again and again, even if I'm completely able to watch all the news in the world and read all the news in the world and not feel that way because my mind goes somewhere different with it. The mistake is for us to go to one extreme or the other, for us to say nothing we do matters if it's not all the same, And for us to say, everything we do matters so much that everyone's failing but me. 
And boy, would it be great to be in a church where everyone looks exactly like me. I think that we see what Paul's talking about here in the weak and the strong in so many different ways. We see it with people who have only been Christians for so long versus those who have been Christians for a long time. We see it with people who, um, who come from very different backgrounds and upbringings than we do, who find themselves really struggling with different things than we struggle with. We find this played out in generational gaps, in generations, right? Uh, if you want to think of an example of this, right, like uh, you, might, you might have a, a memory of maybe like uh, a person getting a tattoo in your family and then your grandpa seeing it for the first time at Thanksgiving or something, right? Or like the nose ring that your cousin got and was trying to hide from their parents forever because they knew exactly what it would make them feel, how it would make them feel, right? Or about the worship style and the way that people uh, sing and, and about the Bible translation that a person might use or about the kind of clothes that you should wear when you go to church. There are so many different things that we can respect are different in one another. Instead of saying, if you actually believe that, I don't want to have anything to do with you, which is disdaining our brother. Or to say, if you honestly think that these things don't matter, then I judge you. God's disappointed with you, and you can't possibly seem to have the love for Jesus enough to try to do anything that's actually real and serious in following him. There's so many ways that this happens that we're tempted to do this. But the good news is that we have freedom. We have freedom, but we can either use that freedom selfishly. We can use that freedom to refuse to be a part of any community where everyone isn't exactly like us, where everyone doesn't do all the same things we do. Or we can choose to use our freedom and to sacrifice it in some instances, for our brother and our sister. What was happening at the church at the time was that some Gentiles would get together with some Jewish people. And the Jewish people would say, we don't eat this kind of meat, we don't drink this kind of wine. And the Gentiles would be like, all right, fine, but I'm bringing it, right? And they'd bring it. And they'd bring that delicious meat. They'd probably like roast it or something in front of them. They'd pour all the wine and everybody would enjoy it. And they would say, it's fine, I'm not going to make you do it. Just sit over there and eat your vegetables. What does it feel like to be a part of that kind of a community? What does it feel like to have someone say, like, I don't care enough about where you're at right now, that I'm willing to throw something in your path to cause you to stumble? God's desire is for us to build one another up. We get to use our freedom to do that. But it might mean rethinking our understanding of what everyone is supposed to be doing universally. And it definitely means, according to Paul, coming before God, before anyone else, and saying, God, search my heart and know me. What is it? What is it that I can do to most sincerely follow you, Lord? And the good news is that we have the freedom to come to God that way. We have the freedom to do that. We have the freedom to know that it is not obedience to the law that saves us perfectly. We have the freedom for all those things because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So as we continue on in worship this morning, as we 
spend some time in communion this morning. Uh, That's something that we are reflecting on. On the sacrifice that Jesus made so that we could be in a relationship with God and in community with one another that's real. Let's pray.